In just a few minutes, we'll be uh, in our final message, the book of 2 Peter, 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, verses 17 through 18 is what we're going to look at. If you'd like to go ahead and, and find your way there in the Bible or Bible app or whatever it is that you might be might be using this morning to uh, look at the word, but 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 17 through 18. Next week, we will start a series on the church. Um, I plan to spend 17 weeks um, in that series where we will look at what is the church, what is the church supposed to do, how does the church function. So uh, it'll be more of a, a topical series, but uh, we will we'll start that um, next week. This week, we'll finish the book of 2 Peter. I hope that you've enjoyed going through first and Second Peter, I know I've enjoyed um, going through it and sharing God's word with you all. Last week we talked about how can we persevere. And what I did not tell you was uh, that was actually part one. At the time I didn't really know that was part one to be honest with you. And then I, as I was reading and reading and reading some more, I was like, well, you know what? We need to have part two this week. So, so this week we get part two of how can we persevere? I don't know of anyone that starts off training for a marathon or uh, an endurance event or really any event at all, to be honest with you, uh, with the thought that uh, they hope not to finish what they're starting. I just don't know of anybody that, that does that. In fact, most people will set goals when doing these events because uh, they not only desire to finish the event, but they also desire to finish well. No one thinks, you know what, I just, I just want to start well, but uh, if I finish, it's really no big deal. As long as I start good, that's all that matters. And as Christians, this should also be our aim. Not that we are to simply start the Christian faith, but that we would finish the Christian faith well. And if we're going to finish well, then we have to understand that it will take perseverance on our part. We can learn this lesson from scripture in the parable of the sower, um, that it's easy to begin well and not so easy to finish well. We know that the seed that fell on the rocky ground sprang up fast. The seed on the thorny soil for all intents and purposes seemed to be doing just fine. Yet neither of them persevered long enough to bring forth any fruit. It was only the seed that fell on the good soil that brought forth fruit with perseverance. And within the context of persecution, false teachers, and lawlessness, Jesus said this, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Matthew 24, 13. Stop and think about the Apostle Paul in the scriptures. If we trace the life of the Apostle Paul, it was doubtful that any other Christian in the history of Christianity had accomplished what Paul accomplished. Yet when it comes to the end of Paul's life, we do not find Paul going over a list of all the things that he had accomplished. But instead, he draws our attention to perseverance. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said towards the end of his life. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And I have kept the faith. 
And throughout his letters, he emphasized the need for steadfastness, especially when we are faced with trials. In Hebrews, we're told to run the race with endurance that is set before us. The last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, promises what is the victor's crown for those that are overcomers and persevere. Here, Peter's wrapping up his final epistle. He's showing concern that these false teachers, they're plaguing the churches, they're, they're uh, going into the churches, and he wants his readers to persevere in their faith. One of the best ways to keep something at the forefront of our mind is just to repeat it. And so this is what Peter does. He repeats the themes he, he has emphasized throughout his letter. He warns them of the dangers of false teachers. He encourages us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And reading this, there were three essentials that stood out to me when, I, when it comes to persevering when I was reading this passage of Scripture. So let's see if we can pick those out as we read this together. I'd ask that if you are willing and able, would you please stand out of respect for God's word as we read 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. I pray, God, that as we look at it and as we ponder it and as we study it and as we meditate on it and as we hide it in our heart, that God, you would use this word to speak to us this morning. Lord, that you would reveal to us ways that we can persevere in our Christian faith in the, in the midst of a wicked and perverse world. Lord, point that out to us. Help us to live the faith that we proclaim. Speak for your saints are listening. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I believe what we see here is that in order to persevere, we have something that we must guard against, which is error. We have two things that we are told to grow in, grace and knowledge. And lastly, that we must live our life for the glory of Jesus Christ. So first, let's see that we have to guard against, this thing that we have to guard against which is error. So we persevere by guarding against error. The New Testament makes it pretty clear for us that the enemy infiltrates the church by deceitfully planting false teachers within the church that sound like they're biblical, but they deceptively lead God's people away from the truth and into these destructive heresies. Peter has spent chapter 2 and a significant part of chapter 3 warning about these false teachers. And in verse 16, he tells us that they are ignorant and that they're unstable. And what does he say? That they distorted the scripture to their own destruction. And so then in verse 17, he gives us a warning. You, therefore, don't be like these false teachers. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand... You know what they do. You know this beforehand. 
Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. That word stability is steadfast or steadiness. It's a, a Greek noun. It's used only here in the noun form. However, Jesus did use the verb from when he uh, predicted the denials of Peter. And uh, uh, he said this, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And that's the same, same word for stability or steadfastness. Same word there. Now remember, Peter, he, was, he wasn't stable. In fact, Peter was far from stable. But he was changed by God's grace into a rock of stability who was steadfast. This is why Peter's concerned that others also be steadfast in the Lord. Peter starts off by saying you, right? He says you, which is emphatic, and it's in contrast to these false teachers. He's telling his readers that they, that they know what he's telling them and that they know how these false teachers operate beforehand. So Peter is using this memory principle uh, with them, which is repetition. You already know how they operate. He's done this throughout the, throughout the entire letter. He wants them to understand that being warned in advance means that you can also be armed in advance for what is to come. We get our word prognosis from this word that Peter uses beforehand. So what does a prognosis do? It enables you to be ready so that you, you don't get caught unaware. That's the whole point of a prognosis. So if you go to the doctor and he says to you, you need to lose some weight or you're going to end up being diabetic. He's giving you an advanced warning so that you can do something in order to correct your situation. Right? That's, that's the whole point. You can prevent this disease by correcting your situation. Peter is giving a prognosis that there's going to be these ignorant and unstable teachers who are going to twist the word of God to support their own immoral lifestyle. In other words, they're going to use the Bible, but they're going to pull the Bible out of its context and use the verses that seem to support their false view while ignoring the verses that confront them in their sin. And since the scripture tells us that men love darkness more than light because their deeds are evil, then these false teachers will never lack an audience because people will flock to them because men love darkness more than light. Sinful people say, oh man, this sounds great. Some of the largest churches in America are led by teachers who mix truth with error. And thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people flock to them. Subtle error, but destructive. Listen, once you're fire away to know if someone is teaching error is to ask yourself if they ever confront sin. And they're teaching. And if they, not, if they don't confront sin, then they're not teaching God's word. But some man-made, watered-down thing of God's word that pleases people. Let's just be real clear. The Bible has some pretty hard teachings that confront the popular culture of our day. It's not popular to say everyone's born a sinner. That's not a popular thing to say. And, and that everyone's hopelessly lost. And not only are they lost, but they're unwilling to even come to God for salvation. That's not a popular thing to say. Don't you think it's much more flattering to, to talk about our human pride? And that we'll make mistakes and, and we'll mess up every once in a while. But we don't really deserve hell. 
It's not popular to talk about hell. It's not popular to teach that Jesus is the only way that anyone can get to heaven. And that those from all other religions on the face of this earth, no matter how sincere they may be, will not go to heaven unless they repent and trust Christ alone. That's not popular. It's not popular to teach that we must repent of our sin and submit to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and Master. It's far easier to teach that grace means that God just kind of overlooks our sin and Jesus is like this little tool that will help us live to our full potential. Some people think I'm a legalist because I teach that, that we are required, that, that the Lord requires us to obey Him. Well, that's legalism. That's not popular. And in our current culture, it may soon be criminal to teach that homosexual behavior is sinful. It's not popular to teach that engaging in sexual activity outside of marriage is sinful. It's not popular to teach that men and women have complementary but distinct roles in marriage, in home, and in the church. That's not popular. I could stand up here all day and tell you about the things that are not popular in our culture, but that the Bible clearly teaches. Some people try to say, well, it's not loving to be critical when it comes to these matters. And they'll quickly say, well, you're just, you're just being judgmental. And what do they do? They try to silence your voice. We're told that we should be positive and not negative. But Peter addresses his readers as beloved. Peter cares deeply for them. He cares enough for them and loves them enough that he warns them about these destructive false teachers. Let me ask you something. If you love your children, do you warn them strongly about running out into the street? As they get older, your love for them moves to give them a warning about the dangers of drugs and sexual immorality and drunkenness because sins leave permanent scars. Love's not just positive. It has a negative warning to it. A warning about the destructive nature of sin and false teaching. One last thing I want us to know before moving on. There's a link between knowledge and behavior. Look at what Peter says. Knowing this beforehand... Take care. Take care literally means be guarded. Guard yourself. Paul gives some great insight into the job of an elder when he says that they are to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. This is why one commentary says plain speaking about Christian deviations is incumbent upon the Christian pastor who wants to lead his flock along the way of truth. Let me give you some real talk here this morning when it comes to guarding yourself against error, especially spiritual error. Let me challenge and encourage you to read some books on fundamental Christian doctrine. You could start by simply looking at, we're, we're Southern Baptists, you could start by simply looking at the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 and reading it. Do you even know what it says? I mean, this is what we believe as Baptists. It's easily found online. I think there's even a link on our website to it. You can go and click on that and say, oh, this is what Southern Baptists 
believe. If you're ready to go deeper, I would encourage you to look at the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith based on the Westminster Confession. I think I have a copy or two in my office. You can download an app called the New City Catechism. I use, I use uh, nightly with our kids. You can read R.C. Sproul's Essential Truths of the Christian Faith or J.I. Packer's Concise Theology, a guide to historic Christian beliefs. At the very least, pick up a copy of these magazines that we have right down in our lobby, these Table Talk magazines. There's all kinds of theological articles in this magazine. There's devotions. We get them so you can take them and use them. Know what you believe and why you believe it. You have to be guarded. Finally, if you want something even meatier, you could tackle Wayne Gruden's systematic theology or John Calvin's Institutes of Christian Religion. If you want to persevere as a Christian, you have to guard yourself against error because it's abundant. Secondly, not only do you guard yourself against error, but you have to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You have to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Guarding against error will keep us from being tossed around by all kinds of bad doctrines and will enable us to grow. Let's look at some truth about growth in a general sense before I break these down um, each, before we look at grace and knowledge. In a general sense, first, all growth depends on life. In order to grow, there has to be life. What I mean is that both spiritually and physically, you have to be born in order to grow. Something has to be living before it can grow. Of course, the problem is that everyone enters into this world not living. They enter into the world spiritually dead. Ephesians 2, 1 and 3 tells us that. Just because someone has morals or maybe they're religious, that's not enough. They are spiritually dead. Jesus told the religious moral Pharisee Nicodemus that unless a man is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. God alone imparts new life. And without that new life imparted from God, Christianity is simply moralism. So genuine Christianity is the life of God in the soul of man. First of all, growth depends on life. But secondly, growth is essential, not an option. One time I was out riding my bike and, and uh, I had those uh, clip-on shoes, you know, that you, I don't know if you're familiar with bike riding or not, but they make shoes that you can clip into your uh, pedals so that you can ride and, and then you got to unclip them when you stop and that sort of thing. And I was fairly new at this and I'll blame uh, one of our deacons, Sean Connor, for this, this problem because he's like, oh, you got to get these clip on. But anyway, I, I got these shoes and, and I'm out riding and I, I come up to a stop sign. I had a problem. I couldn't unclip my shoe. And so what happened? I fell over. I just, I'm on my bike. I just went boop and fell over. And there's somebody in their yard out there. And I'm like, boy, this is, it was embarrassing. You, if you're not moving forward on your bike, you fall off the bike. And to keep moving forward, what do you have to do? You have to pedal in order to keep moving forward. The same is true in our Christian life. If you're not moving forward, you're not going to grow. If we see a child that's not growing, we know, hey, there has to be something wrong. Growth is expected. It's an expected outcome of life. However, spiritual growth never ends. We have to keep growing until the day we meet Jesus. When Paul wrote Philippians 3, 
13 and 14, he had been a Christian 25 years. He wrote, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind me, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We never arrive as Christians. You never reach the spot where you need to be. You're always growing. So growth depends on life. Growth is essential and not an option. Growth is gradual, not instant. How did Jesus come into the world? He wasn't full grown, he was a baby. No one moves from being a baby to an adult in a day, a week, a month, or even a few years. It takes time to mature and develop. People do not bring their baby home from the hospital and say, okay, kid, there's the fridge, there's the bathroom, good luck. Take care of yourself. You don't expect a baby to do what an adult can do. Because there's growth in the process. Now, sometimes adults do what babies do, but that's a whole other story. But, uh, right, there's, there's growth. What is essential when it comes to growth is that we're involved so that the progress is made. You may not see some extraordinary change from week to week. But hopefully over the long haul, you see change. You should be able to look back and know that your love for Christ has caused you to grow in the last five years. You should have a greater sensitivity to sin than you did five years ago. You should obey the word more consistently than you did five years ago. The fact that growth is gradual runs counter to the idea that you can become holy in an instant through some powerful experience with God that's popular in our culture today. I mean, it sounds great to think that you can instantly and effortlessly reach sanctification, but it's just not true. This idea of instant sanctification is often promises as uh, uh, being baptized in the spirit or, or if you speak in tongues, that's instant sanctification. And it's appealing because people, people say, well, there's not really a whole lot of work required in that. However, God's way to godliness is not through that. It's through discipline, not miracles. Does God sometimes give us these dramatic spiritual experiences? Absolutely. I believe he does that. And those times are wonderful when they come to us. However, those experiences do not instantly make you mature. Growth is gradual, not instant. So growth depends on life. Growth is essential, not an option. It's gradual, not instant. Finally, growth is challenging and not easy. Growth is challenging and not easy. You know our, our uh, little one, Austin, that we have running around the house there. Uh, funny thing is, um, when he started walking, he didn't stop crawling right away. In fact, I don't know of any baby that once they learn to walk, they just stop crawling altogether. Why? Because crawling was faster for him. He would crawl and then he'd walk and then he'd crawl and then he'd walk and fall down and then he would crawl and then he'd walk and fall down and did the same thing over and over again. You crawl before you walk. You walk before you run. Spiritual growth like that. There are some tough lessons that you will only learn through trial and error. There are times that you fall flat on your face and it hurts. But you don't just lay there like, oh, well, I fell down and I guess it's over. You have to get up and keep trying. Sometimes you'll get really confident and think, I have this. I, fin I finally learned my lesson. I finally have this conquered. And then you fall, right? And you realize that the Lord is reminding you, you haven't learned your lesson just yet. 
We've got to grow. But two things that he tells us to grow in. Grow in grace and grow in knowledge. First, grow in grace. Grace is the key to our, our relationship with God because grace both saves us and grace sustains us. <coughs> but we know that grace is in opposition to every human way of approaching God. So we have to constantly, constantly be on guard. So we don't fall back into this whole merit system of approaching God. We know that the world operates on the merit system, right? If you work hard in school, then you're going to get good grades. That's merit system. And you'll be able to get into a good college, merit system. If you work hard in college, you'll do well in college and you'll be rewarded with a good paying job, merit system. If you work hard at your job, you'll be rewarded with pay increase and promotions, merit system. The merit system is based on getting what you deserve and deserving what you get. That's the whole point of a merit system. That's the way it's supposed to work. It doesn't always work that way, but that's the way it's supposed to work. All of the religions in the world, including some of them that are labeled Christian, operate on the merit system. How do you get to heaven? Based on what you do. The merit system. I got to do something in order to get to heaven. Just like the rest of the world, I do something to get. I do something to get to heaven. It's a reward for my achievement. Feeds into my pride. I can earn it. But grace is in opposition to the merit system. The whole meaning of grace is it's undeserved favor. What we deserve is not heaven. We deserve God's wrath. Every single one of us deserves the wrath of God. But does he give us his wrath? Nope. He blesses us. Apart from our works. He doesn't look at how good we are and bless us. He blesses us apart from everything in us. Under grace, we can't work to earn heaven. Instead, we freely receive everything that God has provided for us at Christ's expense. Listen how the Apostle Paul explains it in Romans 4, 4, and 5. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You see, under grace, God gets all of the credit, and our human pride gets destroyed. Here's a question we must answer. How is it that we grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Well, we can look to the principle that Peter already gives us when he said that, the good, that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So to grow in grace, that means that we have to come to a greater understanding of the holiness, justice, and sovereignty of God, which leads us to seeing our own rebellion in our heart, our own selfishness, and our own pride. And the more and more that we see just how unworthy we are to be the objects of God's saving grace, the more we will see how great his undeserved love and favor were that drew us to himself. Take a moment and listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon. If you, dear friend, would be truly humble, you must look at your Savior. For then you will say, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? You will never feel yourself such a worm as when by faith you see your Savior dying for you. You will never know your own nothingness 
so well as when you see your Savior's greatness, when you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you will be sure to grow in humility. Or how about Martin Lord jones when he said, Personally, I can be certain I am growing in grace if I have an increasing sense of my own sinfulness and my own unworthiness, if I see more and more the blackness of my own heart. If we're going to grow in grace, we must think of ourselves less and esteem Christ more. We say, I'm nothing. And then you begin to understand the total grace of God. And then you begin to grow in grace. And then he says we grow in knowledge. Third time in this letter where Peter refers to Jesus as our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As I said before, we can't separate Jesus as Savior from Jesus as Lord. So you see, when you come to trust in Christ as your Savior, you abandon yourself to, to, and all you know to Christ and all he is. Our Christian life is a, this progressive growing of submission to Christ as we dig into God's word and we see more and more of who he is and more and more who we really are. And we grow in that, that area because we say, okay, now it's revealed to me who I am and it's revealed to me who God is. And as that is revealed, I submit who I am to who God is. The knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, comes not from ourselves, but it actually comes from Christ as we grow in obedience to Christ. So Jesus made it clear that, that it is the ones who keep my commandments that actually love me. And those who love him will be loved by the Father. And he says they will, uh, that he will love them and do what? Reveal himself to them. This knowledge is both factual about who Christ is, revealed in Scripture, and it's personal. And both are needed. Michael Green says this, Knowledge of Christ and knowledge about Christ are if they keep pace with one another, both the safeguard against heresy and apostasy, and also the means of growth in grace. Having a knowledge about Christ, who he is, what he did, will keep us from so many errors. That comes from false religion. False religions that deny the deity of Christ. But we must not be confused into thinking that Christ is a subject to be studied. That's not who he is. Christ is a person to know. We would be, we would be, grow, uh, we would be growing not only by knowing him more, but by actually personally spending time with him in deep communion with Jesus Christ. You say, well, how do you do that? You do that in his word and in prayer. So if we want to persevere as Christians, there's something to guard against. It's error. There's something to grow in. We've got to grow in knowledge and grace. We've got to grow in grace and knowledge. We've got to know him more and not just know about him, but know him personally. We can know about people. We can know about all kinds of people, but do you know them? I mean, we could probably give all kinds of stats about our sports uh, heroes, but we don't know them. We just know about them. You can know Jesus, and you'll grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Finally, we persevere by glorifying him with our lives. Peter ends this letter with a doxology. 
Right to him be both glory now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This is about as clear as you can get when it comes to a proclamation on the deity of Jesus Christ. Scripture is clear that God will not share his glory with anyone. Yet here's Peter clearly in these verses ascribing glory to Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus is God. The overarching theme in all of the Christian life is that we are to glorify the triune God in everything we do. And what this means is that the aim of us growing in grace is not so that we can feel happier or live a more fulfilled life or somehow be more significant. Instead, we live our lives to exalt the risen Christ so that through us, others will see just how truly great he is. And he would be glorified. In the words of John, he must increase and I must decrease. He alone is worthy of glory. Now look what, how Peter tells us when Christ is to be glorified. Right? He says he is to be glorified both now and to the day of eternity. So when do we begin to glorify God? Glorify Christ. Now. We praise and exalt him now. We don't just do it on Sunday. Oh, I gotta go to gotta go to church on Sunday so I can praise and exalt Jesus. Gotta go and gather for worship so I can praise and exalt Jesus. It's not just Sunday. It's throughout the week. It's every day. <clears throat> every moment. You're supposed to be living your life for the glory of God. As you contemplate his great love and sacrifice for us that saved us from the wrath of God. How do you do that? It's, it's really not that hard. Like, let me give you one example. Somebody might say, well, how can I, how can I watch football? I'll give you an example. Super Bowl's coming up. How can I watch football to the glory of God? Because we like to pretend like, well, there's no way you can do that. Well, actually, there is. So as you gather today, Wherever you gather, at your own house, I don't know where you're going to be. If you want to come over to my house, my house is open. You can just let me know, hey, Pastor, I'm coming over. I got some pulled pork I made with pulled pork nachos, all that stuff. But anyway, that's besides the point. Um, if, you, if you want to come over, you're more than welcome. But anyway, so we, we're watching football, right? How about we just stop and think, Lord, thank you for the blessing of this TV. Lord, thank you for the blessing of football. Lord, thank you for the blessing I can gather with these people. Lord, thank you for the blessing of, of, of being able to hang out with friends. Lord, thank you for the blessing. That's how Charles Spurgeon could say that everything he did was for the glory of God. Because everything he did, he understood that it was by the glory of God that he was allowed to do in the first place. And so that's how we should live our life. When we come to, we come to church this morning for the glory of God. Lord, thank you that I got here. Praise God that for your glory, the parking lot was, was bladed. Praise God for his glory. That's how we're supposed to live. Praise and exalt him now. Praise and exalt him for all eternity. One day, when we're in heaven, when he come, after he comes again, we will gather around the throne. And what will we sing? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth 
and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. We start glorifying him now with our lives and everything that we do and we glorify him unto the day of eternity. Let your last breath, dear Christian, be to the glory of God. So if we want to persevere, we guard against error. Something to guard against. I'm really trying to help you memorize this. Something to guard against. Guard against error. Two things that we have to grow in. Grow in grace and grow in knowledge. And one thing that we have to live, we have to live for the glory of Jesus Christ in everything we do. I close with this. In the year 1968, I take you to the Olympics in Mexico City. The last of the marathon runners were taken off the field to the first aid stations. It had been roughly one hour since the winner, Mamo Woldi of Ethiopia, had crossed the finish line with a time of two hours, 20 minutes, 26 seconds. There were only a few spectators who remained in the stands, and when they suddenly heard the sounds of sirens and police whistles, everyone's eyes turned to the gate where they saw John Stephen Aquari bring Tanzania's colors limping into the stadium. His leg was bloody and bandaged from a bad fall that dislocated his knee and smashed his shoulder. Aquari hobbled around the track past the finish line and the crowd rose and applauded him as if he were the winner. Later he's interviewed and asked, why didn't you quit the race? Others had quit. You had no chance of winning or getting a medal. His reply has gone, out, gone down in sporting history. This is what he said. My country did not send me 5,000 miles to start a race. He said, they sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. Dear Christian, Christ did not die for you to start the Christian life. He died for you to finish. You don't give up. You don't quit. You may be battered and beaten and bruised and bloody, but you can persevere. You don't stop. You keep on fighting because he came not for you to start, but for you to finish. Oh, that we would persevere, that we would guard against error, that we would grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and that we would live for his glory both now and forever. Don't you quit. And for those that may hear this message, you're not a believer, I call out to you today. Today is the day of salvation. If you want to put your trust in Christ today, you can do that. And you can pray something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that I'm a sinner and that you sent God, that you sent your own son to die to forgive me of my sins. I know how wretched my sin is. I ask for you to forgive me. I turn from my sin. I receive Jesus as my Savior. Thank you for saving me. I want to live 
for you the rest of my life. It's not a magic prayer that saves you. Christ saves you if you trust in him. And a prayer like that is your simple expression of trust that he will save you. And if you said that prayer or something like it or you want to know more about it, I'd love to follow up with you. You can come forward. You can go online and, and send uh, the word faith to 309-328-3488. You can do that from your pew if you want to do that. You can do that anywhere you are if you have a smartphone. 309-328-3488. In just a few minutes, we're going to sing a song. I'm going to give you a chance to respond to this message. Even if you're at home or you're watching this later, you can still respond by texting 309-328-3488. You can respond here by simply coming down the aisle. But I ask you, dear Christian, are you guarding against there? Are you growing in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ? And are you glorifying him with the life that you are living? If not, Perhaps you need to repent. It's not about starting. It's about how you finish. Let's close with prayer. Father, thank you for this word. Can I pray that you will use it to touch hearts and lives this morning. Father, sometimes the, sometimes the easiest part is just starting. And many of us in this building, maybe listening online, we've started. Many of us have probably started well. But Lord, as we examine our hearts this morning, we have to confess that the world has taken its toll on us. Sin has beaten us down. Satan has attacked us and we're left weary, hurt, bleeding, bruised. Lord, cast our eyes to the cross where our precious Savior hung there, bloody, beaten, bruised the spear stabbed through his side oh lord convict us that we don't just start this race we finish it and lord no matter how badly we may be beat we finish we persevere and we do so by guarding against air we do so by by growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we do so by living a life that glorifies Christ. Oh, Lord, that we would glorify you today and every day and on into eternity. That we would enter into your presence and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We don't need to rest here. We'll rest in heaven. And Lord, for those that may not know you, may today be the day of salvation. However you've spoken to us this morning, I pray that we'd respond, whether it's coming down or hanging out after the service or sending a text message. Just lead us to respond to you this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen. As we sing, you'd be willing to respond.